Good morning. This is Play It Like It's Music. I'm Trevor. Thanks for listening. On Wednesday, July 29th of 2020, music is not content, it's connection. This is episode 50. We made it. Every now and then, if you get around to clubs and stuff to hear people, remember what that was like, you come across a sound and a vibe so stunning that you never forget it. I've become a fan of so many artists, and oftentimes the fanhood is based on nothing more than the memory I have in my senses of the first time I heard their it, whatever it is that makes them them. I'll keep turning them on and going out to see them for years, sometimes with just the hope that I'll catch another moment like that first one. It was like a portal opened up and boom, there was this musical spirit just lifting the dust out of the cracks right in front of you. I remember moments like that every time I used to go see Tony Shear's trio every Monday. I remember that moment when I was on the gig with Bizan here in the canyon. Crystal Warren is a never-ending moment like that, pretty much every time she makes a sound. Further back, I got to see the Gil Evans Orchestra on a Monday night in Sweet Basil. I saw Radiohead turn the world around in New Jersey about a month before 9-11. I've been to Jazz Fest in New Orleans. Hell, I've just walked around the streets in New Orleans. These are all landmark moments of my musical life. Today is episode 50 of this show, and I couldn't be more blessed than to have another stellar artist and performer to speak with. Yesterday was my birthday. Today we have episode 50. We're pushing two straight months of Black Lives Matter protests all over the nation. James McBride's new book is tearing it up on Oprah, and Michelle Obama just launched her podcast. So given that there's so much going on now and perpetually, I'm extremely grateful for your ears and your attention and your fellowship and your celebration of our shared musical experience. This show is for you in those moments when we are most alone and doing our hardest work in the shadows, far from the stage. It's here for you whenever you need it, and I'm honored to have you listening. So thanks to all the guests we've already had on here, and thanks to all who are yet to come on, you mean the world to me. So, onward. The first time I heard the band called Dwight and Nicole was on a night when I was opening for them at Banjo Gyms, and I walked out a changed man, forever grateful to them for the sound they brought. Sure enough, that portal opened right up. It was just the two of them on stage, but the guitar and the tambourine and the voices sat just right in the coziest pocket you've ever witnessed. The groove just wouldn't quit, and by the time they were done, folks in the audience were all ready to make babies. They are incredible. And today, we're speaking with Nicole Nelson. Like I said, I couldn't be happier. Not only has she got the voice for the band, but she also went on the voice and nearly took the thing. We get to hear her whole background today and get a taste of what it feels like to know you have the talent and the genius and the grit to get up there. And then we also get to hear some of the plot twists that happened along the way. So I'll cut to the chase at this point, since I know you came for the gold. Let's meet Nicole.
Who are you and what do you play? I'm Nicole Nelson. I'm a singer and a bass player. That's right. Why do you make music? I make music because I have to. <laughs> it's, it's what? It's in my bones. It's, it's, I've been doing it as far back as I can remember, and I'll do it till the day I die if I'm lucky. I hear that. Mm-hmm. What separates the professional from the amateur? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I have two answers. One is my used to be my answer, and one is my answer today. My used to be answer was if you're making a living doing it, then you're a professional. And today, my answer is if you're a professional in the way that you conduct your business, in the way that you show up and bring yourself to what you're doing, that there's an element of the professional aspect of your your being your being when i say professional meaning you're you're bringing a higher level the connotation of high level versus the connotation of making a lot of money don't mm-hmm. always correlate and so i think there's a lot of like amateurs that are making a lot of money in the business today and there are a lot of professionals who haven't worked in a very long time right i love your band, and I love the sound of you playing bass. I guess you and Dwight together have this outfit, and you you all kind of multitask. Like I know you all, you, both of you sing, yeah. And then I've seen you moving between bass and drums and guitar. Yeah. Am I am I miss? That's you all kind of do a bunch of things, right? We do, we do. I think uh, primarily I'm singing and playing bass, but um, I definitely grew up playing violin and piano and. A lot of other instruments. Yeah. So tell me about that. How did how did the musical journey like? When did you first hear the call as a kid? Did you do you remember like the first time you experienced music? From man, I mean, it's hard for me. I have a really early memory. I I remember like pieces of my first birthday party and like really really early memories, like being in a crib and stuff. I have some totally weird ability. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember being exactly who I am today, but in this little limited body and I couldn't speak and communicate and like, (laughs) definitely I'm a, I'm a little bit weird in that way, but, um, do you have like voluminous memories from that time or just kind of faint? Yeah. No, I remember specific things. Yeah. I remember, um, I mean, I, when I was in junior high school, I was telling my dad, I remember when he used to smoke pot Hmm. And he didn't believe me. He's like, I stopped smoking pot when we took, you know, when you, you got your own room when I was like a year old. And I was like, oh, no, I remember like you had a pipe that had black like tape on it. <laughs> you would come home from work and like tuck your hair behind your ears and like took out this screen. And he was just like, are you kidding me? Busted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Sometimes kids remember, folks, just so you know. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. mean, you know, that was. Like I remember, I've I've got certain friends and relatives who actually had to really um, police themselves because their kids were getting taught at school that they had to turn their parents in. Oh my god! This was like this was a later development, I think, for you and I. But like, yeah, younger, younger, like younger than Gen Z kids were getting dogmatized against it, and they were like, "Yeah, if you see your parents with any of that stuff, you got to send your parents to jail." And I was like, "Whoa." So and I'm friends with these parents. I'm like, I don't. I'm glad not to have kids right now. <laughs> yeah, this is. I hear you. I not hear that you I endorse, that. you know, habits like that, of course, publicly. But you know, humans are humans. 
Um, humans are wow. humans and, and plants are plants. Let's yeah. just, you know, <laughs> you know. Sure. Plants are plants. <laughs> um, so yeah, like what, so you have like all this awareness as a baby. Yeah. Like, so how did music fit in there? It was just always there. As far as I, as far back as I can remember, which is pretty far, it was always there. My parents, my dad was a audiophile um, and he used to build stereos and work on speakers and stuff. And so he was always playing WBGO. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And mm. so that was the jam. And it was just like, I just remember copying, you know, everyone and everything I heard. Like my first love was I, probably Ella Fitzgerald. I remember being really young and being like, who's that lady? Oh like, my God. Yeah, and, <laughs> and like it was uh, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald singing "Summertime" as a duet on on my dad's vinyl. He played it over and over yeah. for me. Well, all and of I, their duets. I mean, I just like uh, so many. Uh, but there's this really huge song that they did together that, of course, I blank on in the moment of thinking about it. I'm a terrible media personality, by the way. My recall is terrible, but oh, we're I, perfect. Me too. <laughs> yeah, cool. So you and I are in. <laughs> hot competition for journalistic <laughs> positions right now um the score wanna, so far um, is zero zero but yeah um so wait like uh i mean ella fitzgerald as as a singer obviously like there's a quality to her singing that i mean besides all the mm. virtuosity and legendary mm -hmm. stuff that people know about like there's a really mm -hmm. like just a natural if i were listening to her as a baby i would relate yeah, is that exactly. weird to say? Like, there's a thing like that. Whatever she was doing was just coming from this really innocent and young. Yeah. She was able to maintain that rawness, even as she was like so cultivated. Yeah, like, I could, I could. It was just so relatable, you know. In that, yeah, yeah. She's playing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so you got that hit really early on. I did. And I yeah. was obsessed really early on. I was like, this is what I want to do. And I started copying her and my parents were like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so how you. old were you singing along to Elephant Shows? Four. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow, that, that and I was so... obsessed. I was obsessed. And my next obsession was Billie Holiday mm -hmm. and then Sarah Vaughn and then yeah. Carmen McRae. I went down the line of yeah. like all the like amazing vocalists of of you know black american music jazz music i just so by the time obsessed. you hit elementary school it was like it was rolling it was rolling it was rolling and then i was like wait i like pop music too and i got into that when i got a little older in school like michael jackson and and um that stuff wow so then did you obviously so you knew but like you remember the first time you actually performed on stage what was that like yes it was it was at a church thing which we didn't really go to church um but my mom brought us to these like church functions at like all the different churches sometimes it would be the jewish community center sometimes it would be like a protestant church or a catholic church she kind of like wow. was like wherever you feel you know moved is where you should go like and was she so trying she to introduce you around and like give you and openness. Did she have a church that she went to, or what was the? She whole? was Methodist. Um, she was baptized as Methodist. She's from Trinidad, and mm. so she grew up Methodist there. And my dad is just really, really atheist. So he was like, "I don't care what you do, just <laughs> as long as they're not in Catholic school, I'm okay." He was. He went to Catholic school and like <laughs> became like 
brutally atheist. I mean, he's softened to like a nice, somewhat open-minded agnostic today. Mm, right. But right. Um, what part but of Brooklyn then, was this? This was Midwood. Midwood, right near okay. Brooklyn College. Yeah, I love Midwood. Mm-hmm. Me too. I mean, that's like that's the hip neighborhood now. You know. I know it's so funny. Um, <laughs> it wasn't super hip back then, but it was really, it was awesome. It was a nice mixture, predominantly Jewish and Caribbean, and it was yeah. really beautiful. Though it was a little bit of everything. Yeah. Do you guys ever go and gig at the? Oh, pre-COVID, did you ever play at the Owl? No, um, I never that, really played out there. Yeah, I mean that's like a great great club owned by a musician um or in blowdow but it's like an amazing room it's like you know how the living room used to be where yeah. it was really like like extraordinarily music focused yeah and the owl is like that without any of the manhattan bullshit happening around it it's really really great and it's that right in that amazing. neighborhood so you could just go home and oh you know, i love yeah. that well um, good to know i never i've started to tell you about my first um, singing experience in the yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the church tour, yeah. What was going on? It was just a, it was a, an event at a church that was like, my mom was just taking us there because they had like coloring and you know ices and like it was just kind of this fun thing for little kids, and they put on a, a service that was involved a lot of singing and and uh, it was an annual concert. I think I was like three and a half years old. It was right around the holidays, and I sang, oh. "Michael uh, rolls the boat ashore." <laughs> and I remember getting a standing ovation and being like, "I think I'm a singer." <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's all I really remember about it. Was kind of like taking like a solo and being nervous, and I was dressed like a princess. I remember, and I remember. People really liked it, and mm. I kind of caught the bug that wow, being on stage is really scary at first, but then you can like share this thing that people love. Yeah. So wait, so up until this point, obviously, if you're that young, I doubt it. But were there teachers and lessons figuring into this as well? Probably for the older kids. I think it was like I remember like coloring. Um, I remember singing. I remember like playing bells. It was like little kid stuff my mom just probably was like what what am I going to do with my kids during the day and would take us to these places wow. for like little creative change of pace you know yeah so if that's how it began maybe you could just digress for a moment and, and recount for me the time you felt if there was a time where you felt super nervous on stage or like intimidated by your surroundings what would oh, that gosh. have been Trevor, there's been so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> is there is well, there one that sticks out though? Because like I mean, yeah, there is. Know, there's. <laughs> there. I guess for for people who are listening now and they don't know you yet as an artist, which they absolutely have to do for themselves as quickly as they can. But I mean, you're one of the oh, most natural performers I've ever seen. And I'm a connoisseur of these things as a fan. And, you know, I do my best to be an artist as well. But people, you know, you witness people sometimes. And I've I've never seen someone just so effortlessly embodying the music as you. Um, And obviously, if you're describing your childhood to me now, it's like it it goes without saying that that, that's your destiny and and that's your identity. And that's, that's just physically part of you. But... Um, mm. What were what were maybe one or two times that you really felt 
like almost maybe knocked off of that. <laughs> well, right in the beginning of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of thinking that this is definitely what I want to do. Um, mm. I had I started singing like the anthem for school and. I was a pretty, I mean, I wouldn't say I was a nerd, but I was like kind of a smarty pants kid. I was like an honors and AP kid. And and I remember I was uh, vice president of Future Business Leaders of America. Whoa. Which was, yeah, FBLA, man. That was a bunch of nerds. We were, we were great. Um, but I was very focused on getting like as many field trips as possible. And so one of our field trips um, was to a university campus where we had, it was closed. And so we got to, you know, workshop being older, what it's like in a dorm. And like we had these meetings every day and some kids were performers. So they were like, hey, if anyone's a singer we, and you want to perform at the finale day, um, let us know. And my, my best friend was like raising my hand and being like, she's an amazing singer. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm freaking out. And, um, so they were like, well, what do you feel comfortable singing? And I was like, I don't know, like amazing grace acapella. And they they were like, sure. You know? And I, and so I was freaking out the night before that I had to do this. Cause it was at, at like eight in the morning the mm. next day before get, getting on a bus and leaving. Perfect and, time, um, yeah. <laughs> I know even then I couldn't, I'm worthless in the morning. So I was like, okay, well, I, get, I guess I got to get up really, really early and try to warm up. Um, but I overslept, like, tremendously. I woke up at, like, 8.05. I was supposed to already be, like, I was really late. And so I was freaking out, and I packed my stuff as quickly as possible, and I got there at, like, 8.30, and they had planned somebody else was going to just play it on piano. And they were like, why don't you do it together? And I was like, okay, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. And so the person starts playing it in, in a key that's like just, I have a pretty big range, like several octaves of range to work with, which is great. But it was the it was just the worst possible key. It was either going to be like at the very bottom or at the very top. So I went top. <laughs> mm. Oh, and uh and uh yeah and it was and I was belting really loud because there was no mics and my oh, voice wow. cracked immediately I blew my voice out and it cracked immediately and then it cracked again throughout oh, the whole song and then I jumped down to the lower <laughs> oh that's a nightmare <laughs> it, was, it was so so bad and then afterwards people were like oh that was good <laughs> wow so that's like oh god like ways to learn something the hard way like figure out your key ahead of time and if you didn't know that i let me tell you this like i was i was at a i never ever do karaoke it's just like so mm -hmm. not my thing and most musicians mm -hmm. i know are just like they stay no. as far away from that as possible but of course i'm in a bar one night and there's karaoke happening in one room and i'm like god it was like up in woodstock or something and I was with my friend up there, and he and I had, we really bonded over uh, Chris Christopherson, like some of his old, you know, like there was this one album of Chris Christopherson called The Austin Sessions, where he sang all of his own songs that was, you know, they were song by other, made famous by other people. And, you know, just like kind of a retrospective album. And he and I had just like based a large part of our friendship on this album <laughs> and our experience uh -huh. of it. And so someone's like egging, egging us on to do karaoke. I'm like, this is not like, no, like <laughs> I'm not a karaoke person. I don't even like to be here while that's happening, you know, nearby. And, <laughs> right. um, 
But, you know, it's like night wears on. And you're like, okay, fine, fuck it. And I'm looking down the list and I see me and Bobby McGee on the list. I'm like, all right, we'll do that song. Hey, yeah. So, of course, Whoa. the key in the karaoke machine is the Janis Joplin key. So, like, I know right. that song pretty well and I can sing it in Chris Christopherson's key, which is like many levels down. And of course, they hit it, and it's like I'm going. I'm bringing my friend up, and we're like trying to sort of, you know, do the <laughs> me and Bobby McGee act. And it's this key that just makes us look like assholes, just like fuck. Uh. <laughs> so like that's that's reminiscent of that experience, but it's just like, oh man, yeah, no, like that was my one shot at karaoke, of not not needing wow. to visit that. Um, wow. So yeah, I mean. There's this thing about being a musician where like sometimes you're just being trotted out to make a point or you you know it's like obviously music yep. sells everything in the world except itself um, and there's <laughs> so many true. so many feelings of just like you know like you'll find yourself with talent and skill and then joy in making music and then you'll kind of go with that and develop it and the next thing you know you find yourself in performance situations that are just so hostile to the original feeling you know Yeah yeah um, so that sounds like Man. one of those I have a Bobby McGee story too, and it was my first time on stage on a real stage after that that incident. And now I was like twenty years old or so, mm. and my friend was hosting an open mic jam, and uh, and I was like, he was like, come and sing. It was like a blues jam in Boston, and I was like, I only know Bobby McGee and Summertime, and he was like, perfect, <laughs> 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 and and so. I went and I sang both of those songs and it was like, that was actually the launching of my career in Boston. Really? Yeah. I got offered a weekly gig um, from the management that night after I sat in at this blues jam. And I was like, look, I, I literally know just those two songs. I am not, <laughs> I am not ready to have a, have a residency. And um, they were like, well, as soon as you have like enough for like you know, three hours with like a half hour break in between. Whoa. Let us know. Yeah. So I went home and like <laughs> started working on like stuff to the indentured servitude side of the restaurant. <laughs> I went wow. immediately into the pits. <laughs> so when did you have to like suddenly? Obviously, that would have been a moment where you start building your repertoire at a real clip. Yeah. Like, did you rise yeah. to the occasion? Like, what? What were those? Yeah. What was? What were the songs you learned? Well, um, in at that point. Succession? A lot of Ruth Brown, because I was, I mean, I was like, I knew like Nina Simone and everything I loved was sad. I mean, I loved like, I was a chorus kid and like an orchestra nerd. Like I loved like Vivaldi. I was like into sad sounding stuff. And yeah. they were like, whatever you got that could like keep people dancing. And I was like, dancing? <laughs> They're not right. going to want to dance. Like I'm not a jukebox kind of girl oh i'm like oh my god a... yeah oh wait like <laughs> i want to i want to put a pin in this like tell me sure. about your playing background to set oh, this up music? so like um, yeah like when like obviously singing from this really early age but when did you actually pick up instruments and start making it with your hands oh like very similar time i mean we had a piano in the house mm -hmm. um so as soon as i could reach it i was like trying to pick out little melodies and stuff um, and play along while my parents were playing music, I would like go to the piano and like find the keys and play along with that. And then I think I got a guitar for like my seventh birthday. Um, and I just, that speaking of Chris Christopherson, it was a Chris Christopherson song that I learned while my dad was at work, part of it, hmm. which, um, what is that song? Um, 
oh, I can't think of the name. This is uh, anyway. It was. It's a great song. <laughs> I got a running list here. Like, okay, the the Louis Armstrong duet with Ella that I didn't remember. <laughs> The Chris Christopherson <laughs> legendary cut that I don't remember. It's like his most yeah. famous. I keep Thank misplacing you. that list too, so I can never like look anything up from it. But yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't know where I put mine either. Um, I think. Anyway, so I remember playing this, like learning this song while my dad was at work the entire day for like 10 straight hours, like crazy, crazy person. Mm-hmm. Um, my fingers were all swollen and stuff. And then my dad came home and I was like, I have to play you something. I'm like actually really good at the guitar. And he goes, <laughs> oh, yeah. And he picks up this guitar <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's way out of tune. And then he tunes it. Oh, and no. And he gives it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't play anything at all. <laughs> it's like the Matrix, like, I know Kung Fu now. <laughs> right, right. It was like that. It was like I was uh, crazily good at it, like Neo style good for the first time. <laughs> and then he tuned it, and then I realized ground zero. Like, I had to start over. Oh, my God. You probably came up with some cool fingerings that day, though. Probably. Who knows? Wow. I'm sure it was weird. I'm sure it was weird. Wow. So piano, guitar, and then violin at some point. Is that right? And then violin, yeah. My my older brother was playing violin in school when he started the sixth grade. Um, they had a, a band and an orchestra of sorts. And he was bringing home like the, the loner violins that the kids got that were like hand-me-downs from mm-hmm. some wonderful orchestra that uh, hooked up these kids. And... And he brought the violin home, and I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. And I picked it up, and I started kind of playing it kind of right away. Like, it felt like I had done it in a past life or something, Mm. which I've felt so many times with music, with instruments, where I'm like, oh, wait, I think I know kind of what to do with this. And I could just feel it out, and it feels familiar. And and so I started playing, like, Mary Had a Little Lamb and, like, little pieces of songs and and he and my mom were like, how are you doing that? And I was like, I don't know. It's, you know, it didn't sound good. <laughs> but <laughs> it was like, you could tell it was Mary Had a Little Lamb after yeah. a couple hours. And uh, and so I just started playing his violin every day until I got, and then I broke my leg. And I was homeschooled for a year when I was uh, 10, I think. Hmm. And so then I got really good at violin that year and bob ross paintings on pbs <laughs> that was my year of violin and painting wow. <laughs> that is so cool yeah it was pretty great wow. so then i played that through college and i loved it I, I kind of still thought i you know i still kind of fantasize about being in an orchestra i miss being in an orchestra you know wow i did not know that about you, because the first time i saw you was at banjo gyms in the east village and we were booked on a gig together and I saw you for the first time when I think I was opening for you and it was like yeah you got to see Dwight and Nicole holy crap and, wow and yeah, it was I remember. just like so so it was like a really intimate venue and you bring this really intimate sound at that point it wasn't the band sound you it was just you know I think you had nothing but a tambourine and he was yep. just playing guitar and yeah. it was just the most cohesive sound I had ever seen with just that oh, yeah. minimal of a setup um and i'm really a stickler for that stuff like i listen like my my true north is like the joan Gilberto sound with like the the early bossa nova cuts where it was just him mm-hmm. and the legends of him just like rehearsing only with the drummer it was just him and his guitar 
and he would he would just obsess about. He got this great drummer in there, Milton Banana, and just was really like very dictatorial with his drumming style, and came up with that bossa nova sound just one on one with the drummer, and then they built everything else around it. Ah, uh, yes. And it's like that's like a legendary turning point in the history of music. And I remember seeing you and Dwight going, like, this is. I mean, I've like all the the genre here is very familiar to me, but I've never seen it done this way. Wow! Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I mean, people have to hear it. But um, so wait, so like you got this residency gig, um, yeah. and then that was what ten years. So how did to pick up the story with the residency? Where where did it go? Oh, Boston. So I. I met a boy and I moved to Boston because he lived there. And I also wanted to go to Berkeley. And I was like, just so confident at that age that I, and I was like 19. I was like, I'm going to go there. And I know Berkeley has like these scholarship things where you go and audition and then you get a scholarship. And I was like, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. So my plan was to move to Boston, get a free scholarship to Berkeley, go to Berkeley. And (laughs) (laughs) of course, (laughs) right. Obviously. Um, and I, I was very, very confident, but I had good, you know, pretty good luck. I got into Juilliard. I cut school and I took myself to an audition and forged my parents' signatures because they wouldn't let me go. So Wait, I was like, why didn't they um, want you to go audition at Juilliard? Because it was a kind of a sketchy train bus ride situation, mm. danger, sort of dangerous. Perfectly good reason to miss out on something like that. Dude, I was like, make it work. You're my parents. Drive me there. Do something. <laughs> but instead, they just didn't let me go. But I didn't get in trouble for, but I did get in. Hmm. And that was on violin? Was on t- in two areas, actually, but made, it was mostly with vocals. Mm-hmm. But they also, it was, I don't know really, because I didn't get to actually go and flesh it out, but I auditioned with vocals and I auditioned with violin. And they loved me in in both of those capacities. And so I was extremely proud, but I never went. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so I was pretty con. I was like, I could totally just get a scholarship. And so my plan was Berkeley scholarship and then the rest of my life as a superstar somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and... um and so it just totally didn't happen. I went, I did this jam thing at, at this bar. They offered me a gig. I learned like 30 songs in like a month and kind of, I sort of learned probably 15 and kind of could get through a bunch. And I gave everyone lots of solos to get through it. And um, and then I, I started getting more gigs, like going to more jams and getting more gigs that way. So I kind of just never went to Berkeley. I started meeting Berkeley professors and students that would come to my shows and be like, you don't really have to go to Berkeley. And I, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and the longer I was in Boston doing this, the more I was like, you know, a year into this, I got an offer to do the Boston Globe Jazz Festival. I was on the cover of the Boston Globe. I was on mm-hmm. the cover of the Metro, like two years into doing this, the Herald. Like I started just really taking off. There was a DJ named Mae Kramer who had a um, Blues After Hours was her 
and it was like a famous show. She had every jazz artist on that show. And she was like, kind of took me into her wing and was helping advise me and things like that. And I met Fred Taylor, who recently passed away, who booked Paul's Mall and was like super a big part of Miles Davis coming back. Like they were friends and mm. all these people. He was at he was at Billie Holiday's last show ever. Wow. Yeah. And and I was I was I saw him, he had me open for um, Mavis Staples like two years ago in um, in Boston and backstage after the show he told us a story about seeing Billie Holiday on her last show and how he's like you could tell she wasn't in her body like you could see her her shining all around herself mm. and then she died like you know not very long after that that was her last performance anyway Fred Taylor all these great people I started meeting on the scene and just they were like you're do you're already doing it you don't need to go to Berkeley for four years yeah uh, you know although I kind of regret it would have been good to go for a little while and meet some people you know make those yeah connections, I mean it's but, a it's a it's a way to make connections and pick up yeah. some chops if you know what you're doing like yeah I talk often about how crappy my musical experience was which was like 30% the school and 70% my own attitude was the reason it fell so flat. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I'm just like hearing this sequence of events where you have this incredible cocky confidence and joy. Mm -hmm. yeah. that it's just like, you know, when you're 19, you're just like living yeah. in just musical joy all the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, like that's, that's been the downfall of many people where it's like, okay, you get that joy. You feel the joy inside. You feel the confidence. You go knock it out of the park a couple times. Then you got, of course, the people around you. Usually when you're that age, there's people around you who are like in awe of the talent. And they're like, you're going to yeah. be a star. Especially back, you know, when, you know, like you and I growing up whenever it was 80s 90s like the music industry was a completely different thing so like it, the idea totally. that someone could have the talent and then basically win the lottery with the kind of gigs that were going around back then yeah. or even just fit into the industry somehow like be successful as an as a player you know studio cat touring person whatever like mm -hmm. there's so many ways to make it and there was so like the mis the mystery was still you know the people who weren't doing it had no idea how it was being done, but it was mm -hmm. visibly being done in so many places. So it was really easy to be feeling that joy inside, feeling the optimism inside and the confidence, and then being surrounded by, you know, maybe a family member or at least friends who would be like, wow, you're so talented, you're going to make it. And then like yeah. hitting the reality of like, okay, yeah, now just, I mean, it's kind of cool that you were able to jump right in and start gigging without... yeah you know, putting yourself through school. I mean, I, I imagine like the what if scenario, like if you had gone to Juilliard and done that route, what, right. what, it would have been totally different, but maybe not, you know, I mean, any other number of things. But My yeah. life's been a success. It's steady one after another of like, oh, wow, this is it. That It doesn't get better than this. And then that falling through, <laughs> literally, or, yeah. or even more so than falling through, I've decided this isn't for me. Like it, um, I met Whitney Houston's manager when I was about 22, her, oh, wow. her first manager. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, and he was like, heard me on probably Mae Kramer's show or maybe Holly Harris's show in Boston, um, WBOS, some, one of those shows. And he reached out 
through someone who he knew who used to come see me at a weekly residency that I had. And she was like, I have something that's going to change your life. And this person was Whitney Houston's first manager. And he heard you and was like, that's the next Whitney. Hmm. (laughs) And so he wanted to meet me. And I was like, oh, my God, can I curse on this or no? Absolutely. I was like, holy shit. I, I <laughs> lost it. Like Whitney was my goddess. She was she was the ki- she was the king and the queen and and all everyone else. She was just like I couldn't even believe that this was happening to me. So I was like I went to meet him and he apparently she lived in the house with him and his wife for like a while mm. and the walls were lined with gold and platinum records and he showed me the room that she lived in when she was like my a little younger than I was at that time she was like 19 and it overlooked the pool and he was like you could stay in this room and we can work on he's like I don't have years he said he put years into like grooming her before she came out mm. as an artist and he's like he's like I'm 80 I don't have all these years but he's like I have Clive Davis on number 2 speed dial and yeah. we can turn you into a star in six months. You'll be on billboards in Times Square if you want. And I was like, holy shit. So I went home. We met a few times. And each time progressively felt more and more wrong to me. Mm. Um, the last time I saw him, he was like, Clive Davis is having a pool party. And I want you to go. I want you to get the, your cutest bikini. Mm-hmm. And I want you to sing karaoke to some Whitney tracks. Oh no. And I was yeah, I was like, up oh, here we've 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 hit our wall, haven't we? And yeah. and I was just like, man, you know, I remember taking this deep breath and just being like, I have to tell this guy I think we're on two different pages and I have to do that now. And I just took like a deep, deep breath and we're at a sushi restaurant. And I was just like, I really don't think we're on the same page. Um I'm a writer. I play all these instruments. I, I'm not a pop singer like I've, I won't, I will not. I said, just the thought of sing, wearing a bikini at a Clive Davis pool party and singing karaoke Whitney makes me wither up and die inside. Like, I'm just not that girl. I'm, I'm never going to be that girl. I cannot do that. And you know what he said to me? He said, you're a great singer, but you're singing jazz and blues. He's like, I could have Billie Holiday sitting in front of me today and I couldn't sell her. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, well... <laughs> end of this chapter I guess and I was like I just I really appreciate you and I thank you and thanks for sushi and thanks for all of these offers but you know maybe someday we'll work together but right now I think I need to do my own thing and he was just like I have no doubt you'll have a great career he's like but you your way will take you 10 years and my way is I don't have 10 years so that's interesting I mean, yeah, a lot. A lot of musicians really underestimate the just the difference in training it takes to you know between like you know gr- more grounded kinds of music like mm-hmm. you know jazz and blues and then like pop is a complete. That's like going to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. It's just like the level of training required and and stamina mm-hmm. and just like the delivery thing. I mean, I ran a wedding band for a couple of years and I kind of just lived that lifestyle for a minute just to see if I could do it. Just on mm-hmm. a, on a low level like that, and and it was just so eye opening. I mean, because mm, you know sure. you, you you run into the I mean, you run into the real professionals 
in mm-hmm. like, you know, small P professionals, but also capital P, where it's like these people are like on the road with Alejandro Sanz and Madonna and whoever else, and they come yeah. back from the tour and they get right back into the wedding scene and they're just staying in shape Oof. on these yeah. wedding gigs. And it's yeah. just like, it's it's a grind, but it's also yeah. a lifestyle. And for the people who have that temperament, it's like the only way. Yeah, and I don't... Yeah, but like the creative thing is is a whole other ball game. Like folks like mm-hmm. that can't write, you know, for the mm-hmm. most part, or if they do write, they're writing stuff like that. You know, it's like a whole other yeah. approach. Yeah, so I you, just can't get down with either of those kinds of lifestyles at all. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> at all, I can't bring myself to do it in the least. I'd rather like sell TV sets or mm-hmm. something than do that to music. Like for me, it's sacred. It's like yeah. sa- extremely sacred. And being a creative person, I have to follow that muse. And that muse l- leads me, you know, through the trenches quite often. It's never, you know, it's it's not an easy path, but it's the most beautiful and the most true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are, you are a beacon of that honesty there. Tell me... <laughs> Tell me how this this evolved. Like, so, I mean, where were you when you met Dwight? Oh, around that time I met Dwight. I heard about his band um, called Red Beans and Rice in Boston. And there was a lot. This was like the era of like Ronnie Earl. This was like early 2000s Boston. Mm. Ronnie Earl and like um, Duke Robillard and... Ricky the King Russell and these kind of like Boston blues guitar dudes that were like reigning kings of Boston blues. And now the, all those clubs are gone. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, a lot of those guys are still around, but the places are gone. But anyhow, Dwight had a band and I heard that they were really good. I went to go see um, him open for Otis Rush at the original House of Blues in Cambridge. And I was just like, this kid is the best. Like that was the, that was the realest blues I had ever seen. Cause it wasn't just copying T-Bone Walker licks. He was like playing original music with an original band that everybody was just killing it. Two horn players, brothers, John and Scott Arruda on trumpet and sa- or saxophone and trumpet. And um, Warren Grant on drums, who's an amazing drummer from Texas, like blues style drummer. And Dwight on guitar singing and playing. And it was just crushing. They just, mm. it was, I left halfway through the Otis Rush gig because it was such a disappointment after <laughs> Dwight's gig. And I'm not even kidding. Like, wow. it was, yeah, it was, a, he, he'd had a bad day. <laughs> he was older at this point and he had, wasn't having the best gig, but And the Dwight road wears you down, time. yeah. What's that? And the road wears you down too. Yeah. My God, I can't imagine being a 70 year old Otis Rush in Boston, just slugging it out at a 250 person club. Like, yeah. So anyway, but I was, I was like, this guy is amazing. And so I started being a fan and going to his shows. And then he came to a jam that I was hosting at a bar called the Yard Rock in Quincy, Massachusetts. And he sat in with me and we did a slow blues together and the whole place erupted. It was like, a whole electric thing happened. Was that the and first so, time you met? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm getting goosebumps. Like, <laughs> just knowing you two and just going like, because he's, obviously, we're going to, he gets his own episode, so we don't have to talk too much about him <laughs> specifically. But, like, he's obviously what you just described. And then the two of you together make something unique 
you know, because yeah. you have your whole character in in artistry, and when they come together, it's like it's it's this, it's a new thing that it creates. Yeah, it does. I and um, I was always, you know, we just really enjoyed each other's company. We were good friends. We really loved playing music together. Mm-hmm. At the time, at that time, I had a boyfriend and he had a girlfriend. And I remember one time um, he was playing at a club called The Toad in Boston, and I went and I sat in with him. My boyfriend and his girlfriend were sitting in the front table, and the second we started singing together, they both got up and left. Oh, just like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And uh, and then we both got into fights with them that night afterwards. And my boyfriend was like, I don't want you singing with that guy anymore. And I was uh-huh. like, I don't think we're a couple if you uh-huh. think that you can tell me who I can and cannot sing with. Like, we're on two different pages. Mm-hmm. Big time. So wow. then we, yeah, shortly thereafter found each other, one another single. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we both moved back to New York within like two weeks of each other to within a neighborhood very close. It was really serendipitous. It was so weird. Um, and then we started dating. That was like 2004. Wow. And it was just like you never looked back. No. That's no. Amazing. We were like, we were kids. And then we were, we started playing together. That's probably around when we met you. The banjo gym thing happened shortly after that. Mm-hmm. We had a couple of residencies. We, you know, we did like Knitting Factory for a while. We did, we played like the first weekend of Rockwood Music Hall ever. Yeah. Um, and, and you all like, so you you lived in New York and then I, you li- you live in Boston now, right? You moved back? No, no. Oh gosh, no, oh. no, no. Um, <laughs> I moved. Oh yeah, you live way upstate. I'm sorry. Like I, no, people that's okay. bounce around and I'm like I, I lose track. No, I moved. Uh, we moved to Burlington, Vermont. That's right, Burlington. Yeah, which is really far from Boston. Oh wow! Yes. So how long have you been in Burlington? Like nine years. Nine years. So directly from New York to Burlington. Yeah. I guess. When I when we did that show together, I felt like you guys were coming in from out of town, but you were local at that point. Oh well, we recorded a record. We stayed with um, our friend Milt Reader, who has a like a really beautiful classic recording studio in Brookline, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and we stayed with him for like a year and lived there and made an album like piecemeal while we were there at like late at night, and uh, that was. Probably we were staying with Milt when you and I saw each other last. All right, probably around then. Because wow. we did come in for a while. We were coming in for those New York gigs. That's right. For about a year. Yeah. So it's been pretty steady since then, musically for you guys, has it not? It has. It has. Things have steadily grown. It, it was like, you know, it, it's the slow and steady way, but, and they're saying no to things a lot. Um, yeah. But when it's s- real, it can. It can be that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really, it's a beautiful life. I look back on all these things that we've done and accomplishments, and it's like, it's it's been pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> pretty so, wild. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one of the things I love to lean on in this particular show when I talk to people is just like being, you know, getting, giving yourself permission to just live a musical life and get the glitz and the glamour, you know, idealistic bullshit out of that equation and just do the yeah. music. And the music is, it's like food and water and sunlight. Like it can just be there yes, and yes. just keep it, keep it what it wants to be. Um, yeah. 
And then you also had this other experience, which is almost the polar opposite of that, which I want to talk about briefly, which is when you went on The Voice a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me about that like journey sure. You know, from this frame? Because <laughs> I, yeah. I did a sideman gig on America's Got Talent, and it was just so such I. a hayride, you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes. So like, was I it... mean, and you actually went on as an artist and kind of got pretty to like a pretty advanced level in the lineup but i just remember just me going on there to play behind someone who was kind of further on it was just such an incredibly pressurized scene like what was oh it's brutal i did it one of those with them too i did a was it radio city music hall no it was out in new jersey nj pack Uh, oh yeah yeah well so anyway the voice thing was weird because i had already moved to burlington i had like denounced television I'd seen like a few people I kind of knew ish through the scene were on like American Idol or spread out. And people were like, you should do that. You would, you know, win. You got to go do it. And I was like, there's no way (laughs) in hell I'm going to go on American freaking Idol at this point in my life. Like maybe when I was 16, but not, no way. And I was so like anti television reality shows. I had written blogs about how I thought that they were ruining music and ruining people's <laughs> concept of what being a music musician and an artist is. I was like so against it. And uh, then and then Did they ever I, uncover those blogs? Nobody has ever uncovered those blogs. And somebody maybe can get them somehow, but they were like I don't know, maybe MySpace or some horrible mm-hmm. thing like that. Yeah. And they've got they're long gone, thank God. <laughs> But anyway, they I um I was singing on this guy Eli Paperboy Reed has um was recording at a studio in Boston and I went to go sing on his record and while I was there um this producer that worked on it Ed was like Ed Velasquez was like I have a question I know you're going to say no but I have to ask you anyway. <laughs> and I was like, "Okay." And he says, "Would you ever consider being on The Voice?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's like, no, I know, I know, I know, that's not your thing and all this stuff. And he's like, but I'm friends with, he knew someone, one who was a producer and they'd seen a video of me or something on YouTube and were like scouting. And, um, and so that night I went home and my cousin called me and said, do you know that Jermaine is on The Voice? It was a kid that I went to high school with and I used to sing with and was friends with his whole family and stuff. And, and I was like, this voice thing keeps coming up. That's so weird. And I was like, Jermaine's on The Voice. So we started watching it on YouTube because we didn't have a TV here in Vermont. And um, I kind of got into it. I was watching him and he was crushing it. He sang uh, <laughs> Avril Lavigne's Complicated, mm-hmm. that song. And it was, it, was, uh, it was previewed during the Super Bowl. So I was watching the Super Bowl. And the next thing I know, there's Jermaine. And they're like, he's singing the song and he's killing it and chairs are spinning and people are screaming and they're like, you know, this is the next contestant on The Voice. And I was like, oh my God, this is The Voice thing that they're talking (laughs) about. Like, that's my high school friend and he's on it. Anyway, he won the whole thing. He ended up winning. Yeah. And so then Ed reached out to me again right after I was thinking, maybe I should do that. I I don't know. Like, if you get to sing what you want... And they're not scouting you based on your bikini wearing capabilities. Yeah, so it's not the, it's not quite the sellout <laughs> extravaganza that exactly. ADT was. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking at the time, kind of starting to toy with it. I hadn't seen the show for real. I'd only seen it on YouTube clips of him singing and it seeming to go really well. And then I found out it was the number one show on television. And then they reached out personally to me and then through Ed again. And we're like, if you do audition, they already love you. <laughs> Get it. And I <laughs> yep. was like, okay. So then they set up a private audition for me in New York and I was like, gonna be in New York already. It was perfect. It was so, all these weird coincidences. And I was like, I'm gonna go and see what happens. So mm -hmm. I went, I, I asked if we could audition as a duo. The first time I went with Dwight and we both won the thing together. And then when we got to um, LA, we spent like two weeks out there and they had another duo. So I started looking into the legality of it. I almost didn't do it because the contract was like 120 pages of. Yeah, no, I had that same. Like, I mean, I'm sure yours was like way thicker, oh but my God. like that was one of the things that really wigged me out of that whole experience. Mm -hmm. Was like we, you know, you obviously are getting ferried around and hurried from from place to place, and you're also getting like we were getting shut off from the artists we were supposed to be collaborating collaborating with, and it was like this. Mm you know, this cute little duo, I guess they were college friends or something. And so we got a highly supervised rehearsal with them. And wow. and then we were we, we sort of like glanced longingly at each other and then were ferried out separate <laughs> doors and we weren't allowed to meet. <laughs> oh my God. And then that's kind of weird. And it's like, so then yeah. they they put us in like right, you know, and then we, obviously we drove back to Pennsylvania after that and then we came back for the next thing and they, they had us waiting in the dressing room right before sound check, right? So the first time we're gonna go for the taping and there was this brief sound check and we had something like four minutes and during that time backstage, you know, the contractor comes back with these contracts. It's like, okay, I need you to uh, initial every page and sign all these things. <gasps> no. And it's like a 40 page <laughs> contract. And I'm just like, oh, it's like, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll read this and sign it. It's like, no, you got to sign it all now kind of thing. Oh, and then I was God. like, just, I was like, well, uh, that's kind of weird. It's like, well, you know, you could go home, but we don't want you to, you know, so it was oh, that kind of sign on. or die type situation. So yeah. I, and then we didn't even get to take copies of it with us. Like, can I have a copy of this later? So at no. least, no, you can't have a copy. You just have to sign an initial everything and give it back to me. And I was like, whatever. Oh. Like, I just didn't care enough about the gig to bother with it. So I was just like signing and skimming as I was like initial and just trying to like give at least take a second to look at what the hell it was. And it was right. all this shit. Like, you will not have any social contact with anyone you meet here. You know, all wow. really, all everything's the property of the company, this and that. And obviously the stuff right. that you would, like the worst stuff that you'd expect, basically signing total ownership of every yes. personal contact in addition to all the music and, and all this stuff, which is fine. Like yep. obviously no no TV union minimums or royalties or anything like that. You know, I mean, like it's not, <laughs> it's not even like a Letterman appearance where you get the basic minimum. It was like a whole other level of like, you don't, you don't get any of this. So, oh my gosh! You know, we got, um, we got to go through, but I was like, you know, by the time we the thing was all played out, we ended up doing it, I think, twice or maybe just at once. Mm -hmm. If they advanced, I think we just did the one song with them, and then they got eliminated or something. But we got to be friends with them, and then it was the kind of thing where like we wanted to stay in touch with the artists, so we ended up like getting 
you know, trading phone numbers, but then like having to kind of sneak that part of it in. And there was this oh, part where so we weird. found each other's in the hall. Like they're like they have the side auditorium where everyone is um you know, they have all the acts in this like the other auditorium that's not the main auditorium and everyone's kind of like chilling out there while they're waiting for their turn. And yeah. uh, so we found each other in that space and we kind of like started jamming in the corner and people came up and shushed us and like, you can't be together, you can't do that. You know, they separated us. Oh it was this gosh. weird, like fully policed situation just for us. Like yeah. even just as side musicians, it was this weird thing. What was the vibe when you were on that? Wow. It's very different from from that. Um, well, when I did the America's Got Talent side thing, or when I did the voice thing. Either way, I didn't know you did the AGT part too. Just as a guest um, mm. on Jonah Smith was on it. I know Jonah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was on it for a hot minute a few years back and asked me if I would come and sing on uh, that Sam Smith song he did, "Stay with Me." Mm-hmm. So I did. I went and sang with him on that. And it was it was really fun for me because I was it was Radio City Music Hall and it was nowhere near that policed the way that it was for your thing. I think it's because it was live, so it was there was no like pre-recorded and then you can't talk about what happened thing. Because on the Voice there was a lot more of that. They were like, you can't. There's going to be press staking out the hotel. You have to, you can't talk to anyone. It was like a secret code of why we were even there. Wow. And it was also the American Idol kids were there too. So we would hang out like in the hallways and sing at night. All all the voice kids and American Idol people together um, would hang out, which was cool. It was crazy. Mm. Um, but like people were trying to, fans of the show would like stake out, like find out where you're staying in Burbank and like go to stay at that hotel. And, oh and my like, God. yeah, it was really crazy. <laughs> Um, but the, for me, to, the, the contract was, was so bad that I was like, dear God, if I win this, that's really bad. <laughs> because I'm like, I'm a working musician and I, I need my royalties. I, that's how I, I need to own my music. This is mm-hmm. how I pay my rent. Like I've written a lot of stuff. It's placed everywhere. And as per the contract, they own everything you've ever done God. to the fullest extent of the law, which that's is like 39 so- years or something. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Wait, even so stuff you, you've done before that? Yes, indeed, wow. Trevor. The stuff you did before that. I mean, long story short, the contract wasn't conducive to my existence after after the show. Like I need to own my music. And I and I remember just it was it didn't end super great for me. You know, they wanted me to say stuff that I didn't feel was true to who I am. And I was like, I'm not playing a character here. I'm I'm being myself. So all I have is my integrity and I'm mm. not I'm not going to say that. And then that became an issue and then they were like then you're going to go home and I was like regardless of how things go down I'm going to go home because I don't want to lie about my background. Okay. Mm. And so it ended poorly. Um but it was still a really beautiful experience as far as I was on and off in Burbank for like 6 months taping. And it was fun. They paid us pretty well. I was part of union at the time, too. Um, So I did okay, not as well as I would have done if I 
had just stayed home and done touring and done my gigs, but yeah. um, it was okay. It wasn't as bad as for some people I know, like they get like nothing. Yeah, well, a lot of that stuff nothing. is like based on how much they can control you. Like they mm-hmm. want to capitalize on something. So they get all these people in that program together and they put them, like they make them duke it out in the in the popularity mm-hmm. contest. And yeah, like I've I've seen numerous people in the clubs you know, before and after an experience on a show like that, you know, even playing at places like Sidewalk Cafe in the East Village, there's people kicking mm-hmm. around there that had had, um, there was someone who had been on American Idol who had just gotten really far and then, mm-hmm. you know, a year later was back in the club just, just slugging it out and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of had nobody at the same time. Like it was just it such is. a, like you play the game or you get played <laughs> or both. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like one to be bullied around, so it wasn't mm-hmm. a good scene for me. I was like, you you can't make me feel like I have to do this because I know that I don't. So if yeah. you, that means I go home, awesome. Like Lake Champlain is calling me. My friends are <laughs> all there. I've been cooped up in this hotel. Like I can't wait to go home, and yeah. I have a great life. I have, a, you know, next weekend we're booked two sold-out shows at the Blue Note, so mm-hmm. I'm okay. I don't need this, you know. Yeah. They were like, you know, really wanted me to be like, this is my last chance. And I'm like, it's absolutely not. Like, this this is a great <laughs> opportunity, <laughs> you know. <laughs> last chance. <laughs> like, I will not say that. Like, yeah. it is not true. I will say this is a great opportunity. I will say this is the most exposure I've ever had in my life. I will say this is an incredible time. I will say all these other things, but I'm not going to say this is my last chance because it is not true and I'm not playing a character. I am myself. And I will only be true to myself. <laughs> Amen ever. to that. Amen you know? to that. Yeah. Yeah. So so what have you been doing since then? So what um I mean you and Dwight have this song out now. Uh next go yeah. around. Yeah. And Yeah, so- we put out an EP called Electric Lights um in twenty eighteen mm-hmm. that did pretty well and it had um, it had a really big sound as well, as I recall. I mean when it came out yeah. just Oh, and you're playing the bass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that song, the song Wait was the lead single off of that. And Melissa Etheridge heard it and like reached out to us and we played on her cruise. She, we, she sang it. She like showed up backstage and was like, hey, can mm. I sing this song with you? And I was like, wow. are you kidding me? You know the song? She's like, it's our favorite <laughs> song. We played it at home all the time. I was like, this is crazy. So stuff like that started happening. We, we, we put together the trio with Ezra Oakland on drums mm-hmm. um, and just started going it at it. And we've been recording at Studio G in Brooklyn with Joel Hamilton. And um, just really, he just kind of was like, didn't interfere too much with like, I don't know, we just spoke the same like, musical language and just really enjoyed each other and got, he got each other. And like the music was, he's so good. He's such a great producer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so the music kind of was like, very raw still it had our like thing that we do live we recorded straight to tape so it's that analog feeling to it and you know we we didn't have enough money to mess around with stuff too much Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know i mean like you know so we like a week at the studio was like okay and we've tapped our budget out and now we need to (laughs) that's it that's what we're that's what it is and it was great it was great 
And so that album did well enough that we were able to buy a tour van and like start touring. And we we got our first distribution deal with um, Sony uh, Orchard imprint. And we, you know, we started to tour the country a bit and like get picked up by radio stations and all this kind of cool stuff happened just organically. Like we didn't, you know, invest in it. I wish we were able to, because it could have been a really big thing, but it yeah. was big enough But I mean, to life happens in the meantime, you know? Yeah. And we have a great life. Like, I'm sitting here literally watching birds flying over Lake Champlain. My dog's asleep. You know, there's food cooking in the kitchen, and it's just this perfect day, and I'm here talking to you <laughs> on my little blue Yeti mic, and <laughs> it's like everything I really ever wanted, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, Nicole, this has been such an incredible privilege to talk to you today. Thanks. Um, Likewise. I'm, yeah, I'm blown away by the music y'all make. Thank you. That's really, thank you. uh, Just facts, just facts. Um, (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, this is, this is actually the 50th episode of this show. Oh, wow. Uh, So it's like awesome. a milestone for me, um, and it you know, hasn't, been, hasn't been that consistent for me from the beginning. But um, since the beginning of the year, it's been every week, and I'm just really glad with how it's been going. And I'm really glad that I have you on today. Um, Likewise. I guess last question I have for you is if uh, if you were talking to which you are, if you're talking to a, a newer musician, maybe just mm-hmm. starting out, uh, what would you tell them to stay away from? I would say stay away from anything that feels like a compromise of your values. I would say avoid people that are trying to take advantage of you and you know it. Um, I would say follow, this sounds cliche, but you have to follow your heart. And that takes, it's not easy because that kind of trepidation of when something is not for you feels a lot like fear of when something's right for you, but you're unsure if you're going to be able to do it. And like becoming aware of the difference there is work you have to put in early on in life. You need to know, is this jitters or is this person completely wrong for me? Is this plan not my path? And and so getting getting to know yourself, get to know yourself truly, challenge yourself daily so that you get to know that line of this is just nervous or this is wrong for me because you're going to need your own true north to be you're going to need that inner compass to be working well in this industry especially today there are no rules and there's plenty of sharks Mm -hmm. and often they're dressed up and seem like your biggest dream come true when they're not you know so following your heart getting to know yourself is paramount i'd say and that's not there's nothing that's going to make you a better artist than being true and following your own intuition and your own muse yeah well that's a great note to end it on here thank you so much nicole thanks trevor this has been really nice cool
That's Dwight's guitar out there. I'm gonna have him on very soon. Just wow. <laughs> Dwight and Nicole. You gotta go follow them. Hit them up. Thanks for listening. Yes. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Thanks for listening to Play It Like It's Music. Thanks so much to Nicole Nelson for spending some very generous time with us. You can find her band at Dwight and Nicole.com and check her out on socials at Nicole Nelson uh, G on the end. I can't believe we've gotten to 50 shows. If you believe this show deserves a wider audience, please tell a friend. It's all in your hands, people. And I'm grateful for every single share. Follow me on Twitter at Twever, Twever, Twitter, Twever. Twever Twitter, Trevor Exter. And uh, yes, that's me. Talk to me on Twitter, on Twitter, if you have thoughts about the show. All right, I'm a mess. I'm officially a mess. Uh, we're all contending with a mutating professional landscape, jacked revenue streams, a catastrophic global pandemic, and plenty of other noise out in the culture. But you gotta keep playing. We don't draw lines here between scenes or styles. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, to play it like it's music. It's a beautiful thing, makes the world go round. So big love to your ears. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>